Ah, Romans 9. Do a little stretch before we get to this one. Romans 9. So for some, this is hard to hear. It becomes an opportunity to wrestle with and grapple with the mystery of God's sovereign call and love and yet our responsibility. We're not robots. Let's just get that one out of the way. We're not puppets. So for some, it's hard to hear, but for some, this is a balm to the soul. A reminder that in all the ups and downs of your lives, God is not asleep at the wheel. He's not surprised when the bad thing happens. He's saddened by it in Christ, but he's not derailed. He is the king. He is in control. When I was in grad school, Romans 9 was fodder for philosophical debate. How do we reconcile these things, the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man? Surely there's a way in which these two can be compatible, and there is. But it's so much more than than an intellectual debate. I remember when I was with my family in California, 15 years old, going through cancer treatments at John Wayne Institute in Santa Monica. It was these truths that were my great comfort in life and in death. That God is in control. That although I do not know the outcome, I know the one who knows the outcome. And so I want to commend to us this morning, because we don't get to cut things that are challenging out of our Bibles, that all that we have read is true. And I know we have questions and objections. Paul knows that too. Indeed, he anticipates and answers those very things in the whole of Romans 9. But before we get to far ahead of ourselves, understand this, that the main point of this text, of the chapter, Romans 9, is, is not simply God is sovereign in his loving calling and election. The main point is not God is sovereign. Why? Because that's not the problem Paul is dealing with here. And to understand the text, we have to understand first the problem, and secondly, the personal nature, Paul's anguish in the problem. You see, for Paul, God's sovereignty isn't the problem, it's the solution to the problem. So what's the problem? Well, the problem of Romans 9 through 11, which is now this third movement, the third of four movements in this great symphony that is his letter to the church in Rome, the problem has to do with ethnic Israel, the people of God, who have both the pedigree and the history of God's covenant promises and those promises in real time. No Israelite in the ancient Near East would have even scoffed for a moment at the idea that they were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people. So what do we do now after Romans 1 through 8 with this problem that many Jews in the first century, by the way, read the book of Acts, many Jews believed Jesus is the Messiah. They saw that the entire Old Testament in shadows pointed forward to the substance Christ, but many didn't believe. And for Paul, that's a problem. 
They may have the promises, but how is it that they could reject the person, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior? Now, Paul feels this deeply. It's not some sort of impersonal, abstract, intellectual debate. Notice what Paul says here in our text. I speak the truth, verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And that's why in verse 3, he takes upon himself to deal with the problem of Israel, ethnic Israel, this solemn vow. Did you notice the oath that Paul takes against himself? He uses covenant language. We've studied this before. He says that I would be accursed, even cut off. Remember in those old school, ancient Near East contracts, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, they would take sides of the animal and make a path out of it, and the two parties making the contract would walk through. And the handshake was this, keep this contract and you will live, keep it not and you will die and be like these animals on the ground. That's what Paul is saying, that he wants his countrymen to know Jesus. And I just want to stop here for a second. Is Do we feel that for our friends, for our neighbors, for our people? God help us that we would feel it more. Paul would exchange his own life, his own knowing Jesus for the sake of his brothers in the flesh. And the flesh is the issue. Again, ethnic Israel seems to have it all. Paul lists in verses 4 through 5, Eight glorious, historically rooted, unshakable promises, culminating in the greatest promise that God could give, the giving of His own Son, Jesus Christ. But the flesh is the issue, because Paul says, it is God who calls. And not all of those who are the offspring of Abraham are truly the children of the promise. So he makes this distinction. There are the children of the flesh, biological, ethnic offspring of Abraham. And then there are the children of the promise. There are those who have been physically circumcised, and there are those who have had their hearts of stone circumcised and turned to hearts of flesh. So Paul's answer here is in the sovereign mercy of God, it's it's not the biological offspring who inherit the promise, but the children of the Holy Spirit who are, as Jesus says in John 3, born again. And to answer this question, Paul is emphatic, God has not failed. In fact, as we'll see, there isn't a narrowing of God's grace. There is the obscene widening. Why is it obscene? Because weird, non-historical, no-promise-having, dirty, funky, strange Gentiles, like all of you, and not even just the clean-cut Santa Fean Gentiles, but Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation are now invited to be grafted into the tree of God's sovereign, free grace. So the main point isn't his sovereignty. That's the solution to the problem. The problem isn't the main point. The main point is that God's grace is his to give. And God's word has not failed. It has not failed you. So if you find yourself this morning in pain or sickness or broken relationships or sadness or 
or wandering or wondering. This is for you. God's grace is His to give, and His Word has not failed. God calls His children in Christ, and at great cost, the Jew and the Gentile, even you. And I want to unpack this main point, grace is God's to give, in two ways, using Paul's outline. First of all, considering our truth, the truth of what's being taught here, and our blessing. What does it mean? Grace is God's to give, and this is our truth. This doctrine, although it may be hard for us, is beautiful. So here's what I want us to see this morning, and go home and reread Romans 9 and cling to it as a balm and as comfort in the hospital, because here's what I want us to see. Not only is God supremely powerful, but he is supremely good. That famous quote from the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, you've heard it before, there is not one square inch over all creation on which Christ does not declare, it is mine. Every atom, every cork, every thought, every need, it is mine, declares King Jesus. Indeed, Colossians 3 says, he holds all things together by the power of his word. God is supremely powerful, but he's supremely good. At the same time, not only is he sovereign, but we are responsible. And I confess there's mystery here. I'm happy to provide for you orthodox, historical, Christian bibliography that attempts to show how these things, God is sovereign, you are not a robot, work together. And there's very helpful explanation. At the end of the day, I don't understand it. I'm 37. Maybe when I'm 47, I will. But I know this. The Bible teaches that both of those are true. And lastly, as you hear and think on these things, may the Lord well up within us great humility. If these doctrines which soar to the heights of mountaintops are true, then we of all people should be most on our knees. If these things are true, we are to be most humble and most filled with the peace and the rest of God. Grace is God's to give. And we see this in his power. It's the first thing I want to say this morning. Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. There are hundreds, even thousands of verses in the scripture, especially the Old Testament, that make this truth undeniable. He is the creator. We are the creature. He created the world from nothing. Is there anything that our God doesn't know? Is there any place where his eye doesn't see or his hand can't reach? He is the king of the cosmos, and you yourselves said it. Thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if this is the God, and this is our God, then this truth comes to us, this power is good news. Because we're not subject to the force. We're not subject to the fates, therefore not victims of fatalism. As if there's some impersonal force out there that just 
divines and decrees your path. No, God is personal. Nor are we subject to the capricious will of Zeus and Iron Man and the other little G-gods that make up the pantheon. They're a little smarter than you. They're a little bit more powerful than you. They have the same desires and lusts that you do. And they are no gods at all when you are in trouble. They have not ordained the past. They do not bring forth the future. In fact, they're probably busier just trying to get theirs. At the same time, we don't need to fear that soon we'll discover some formula, some algorithm, whereby in this closed system of atoms, we can finally figure it all out, map it out, and realize that you're not actually free in the first place. Everything is determined. The Bible denies all three of these. The power of God is extensive. It is personal. And we must realize that there's no novelty here for Paul. He's not making this up. Again, no one in the Old Testament had a problem with this idea. And although Romans 9 is sort of the classical locus of the teaching, it's all over the Scriptures. It should be no surprise to us. We've been studying Romans for a couple months. Romans, remember? The book wherein Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And free grace comes alone to be met by human faith, which is a gift alone, so that man can be justified and adopted and saved. The idea of salvation by grace alone necessitates that God is sovereign. Grace alone means God gets all the glory. And I love this quote from John Piper. I was telling John, you can't really talk about Romans 9 unless you talk about John Piper. So here we go. Piper puts it this way. Thank God that free grace is not a mortgage. Generous, perhaps. Maybe you even got a good interest rate. Now's a good time to refinance. But with a mortgage, you have to pay it back. The bank might be generous. They might even look at your past and still give you the jumbo loan. You might get a good rate, but you have to pay it back. Paul says in Acts 17.25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. Just take a breath right now. That's God allowing that breath. Life and breath and everything. In other words, you can't give God anything or do anything for God that hasn't first been given to you and done for you. And that is good news. In this way, Paul expands upon the patriarchs. He deals with Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and the twins. And it is kind of hard to hear that language, but it's clear before they were born, before they had done anything, it wasn't as if God foresaw the good that they would do. The point is this, that it is neither human will nor exertion that saves us, but God's mercy. 
It's not our working toward God or running toward God that saves us, but his mercy alone. He must do it. And the truth is, we know that he did. And if you've been saved, if you've been rescued, if you have been exposed and laid bare, you know you're a sinner. You know the depth of your need. You know when you compare your life to the law, you fall short time and time again. You look back on how you lived before Jesus. Yes, we still wrestle and struggle, but man, before I was a Christian, and you know that God did it, that you weren't just some sick person that needed medicine. You were a dead person that needed resurrection. Dead people can't resurrect themselves. I love this quote attributed to Charles Spurgeon. So I think this sums up our experience of both our freedom and love for God and his free love and calling of us. Spurgeon said, It has been worded to me like this. Before salvation, we stand outside a great door and see a sign on the outside. Whosoever will may come. Ask, seek, knock. And we go inside, rescued by Jesus. As we enter in, we turn back. And we look over the door and see another sign, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God is powerful. There is precedent for his power, but why? What's the purpose of all this? And the thing we cannot miss in this text is that not only is God powerful, but he is good. He is so good to save us. I am so glad God does not give us what we deserve. No sinner deserves his pardon. This is so humbling for me. I mean, of all people, I deserve it because I'm a professional religious person that tells people about Jesus for a living. And I drive a Subaru in Santa Fe. I mean, I deserve his pardon. But we are not entitled to the free grace of God. We are entitled to the judgment of God. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Thank God Jesus gets what we deserve. Some of you out there have an issue with how entitled the youth are. Those youth are just so entitled nowadays. I'm sure you were a lot better when you were 20, so simmer down. But oh, the youth are so entitled. Well, if you feel that way, apply that to your own salvation. We don't earn it. It's not our right. It is God's free gift. Reminds me of the grandchild who goes to his grandparents' house and sees a gift or two under the tree and starts to shake the gifts and, you know, hope that they're going to get just what they want. They open the gift and all of a sudden it's a pair of socks. They forget the fact that their grandma sat across the table when she was young and counted beans across the table to make sure the family would be able to eat. But no matter, I didn't want socks, and they throw it back under the tree. That may or may not be a personal story. It's not. It's not. I wasn't that bad. But may we never treat God's grace like that, thinking we deserve it, when it is God who sets his love on the unlovely. And that's why on the question of fairness And justice, Paul says, are you serious? Who are you, oh man, 
to question the justice and fairness of God. God who gloriously and in ultimate unfairness gives the life and work and death of his own son to stand in your place. God who doesn't narrow his grace to one people or one tribe or one tongue, but widens it so that through his son the entire world might hear and know that there is hope for them. And it becomes personal to us because we must choose. It's interesting because for the problem of ethnic, religious Israel, in the first century, all of the stumbling comes down to the person of Jesus. At the end of Romans 9, Paul quotes that great Old Testament text about a stumbling stone has been laid in Zion. The Jews have all the covenant pictures and promises And yet it is Jesus that they stumble over. And so really the big question of Romans 9 isn't, can you fathom the mystery of God's cosmic sovereignty? The real question is, what will you do with my son? What will you do with my son? And this is a warning to us. Because in those days, these folks had all the trappings of a sanctified religion. They were Paul's brothers that he longed for. And the fact is, we can have all the trappings of religion, but until we have a sovereign Savior, we are helpless and hopeless without Christ. And so the solution to the problem is that God is in control of all things, but the resolution to the problem is Christ himself. And I want to encourage us as we wrestle with these things, the all-powerful, all-knowing nature of God, our choice, our freedom, our need, the place to go isn't philosophy textbooks. The place to go is the cross. Because in the cross, we see the resolution of these things, God's ultimate power and his ultimate goodness, so that sovereignty is never divorced from mercy us. There are no grandkids in the church. Each generation anew must choose, must answer this question, what will you do with my son, must believe. And that's why this great truth, our truth, leads to our blessing. If grace is God's to give, here is the twofold blessing. First, our humility. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, like if God is this big, if God can't be warped and molded by our will, if he's not up in the heavens playing Minecraft right now, and you know, if God is truly this glorious, then, then our pride is destroyed. Interestingly, both the pride of our self-righteousness And the pride of our unforgiveness. Stay with me, church people. Because church people know that you're not supposed to be self-righteous. And justify yourself. But how often do we struggle with even forgiving ourselves or others? Mike Kruger puts it this way. I love it. He says, In all of my pastoral ministry, most of my effort is basically boiled down to this. 
trying to convince the prideful that they are actually as sinful as the Bible says and need Jesus, but also trying to convince the broken that they are as deeply forgiven as the Bible says and have Jesus. If this is true, our pride is destroyed. What does that mean for how we love our neighbors and our wives and our kids and our friends? What does it mean for the people that are really hard to love? What does it mean for the way we do evangelism? Someone might say, well, if God is sovereign, I don't need to share the gospel. It's the exact opposite. God is sovereign. You're not. He's commanded us to share. So what does this mean for how we share? Humbly. We are the first to kneel and to pray for our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to serve our neighbors. Humility. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. So here's our heart, Lord. Take it. Covenant, seal it. For your glory above. So our blessing in the sovereignty of God is humility and peace. And we'll leave with peace. There's a lot going on in our world today, isn't there? Some of you are smart enough to not watch the news, but for the rest of us, there's a lot of things. There's power plays everywhere. Whether it's city, state, local, country, geopolitical, the nation's rage. By the way, God is sovereign doesn't mean, well, it's all going to burn, so where's my Mai Tai? No, God's sovereignty means do something about it. Be the hands and the feet of the new creation in the world. Care about the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. Do the justice of God. Get busy with the work. But it also means we can rest. It also means that when the nations rage, as Paul says, when pharaohs rise up, we can rest because God is in control. Think of our brothers right now in China. I was there five years ago with this church in Chengdu. And the crackdown right now is real. It's real. Christians are being persecuted, locked out of their house, losing their jobs. Churches are being destroyed. The emperor has been installed. Term limits have been removed. It's not a good situation. You know what? God is in control. God is in control. Even the gates of hell will not come against the church. This little church in Rome, they could not have imagined that someday there'd be a building full of Christians in Santa Fe. And here we are. And even where there is persecution in the world, the church is growing like wildfire. Because this is the answer, the grace of God. And the grace of God is his to give. And he gives it freely to us in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that grace is yours to give, but you are a giver. You are our Father. As we learned in the first eight chapters of Romans, you delight to solve these problems. We're dead in our sin and trespasses. You delight to send your Son so that resurrection might be ours. Our hearts are made of stone You delight to send your Holy Spirit to give us a heart of flesh, to make us children of the promise, to help us be born again. Turn our eyes to Jesus, your Son, where we see both your power and your goodness. 
your sovereignty and our responsibility, where we see in the humility of Christ the way forward in our own humility, and where we have such peace that even though the nations do rage, nothing will stop your perfect plan from coming to pass. That is so much rest for our souls. Thank you. Amen.